When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. We loved Bombay Talkies so much that we couldn't stop talking about it. So we're bringing you another episode from our conversation. To learn more about our guest and her new book, please listen back to our original episode with Debatri Mukherjee about Bombay Talkies. Uh, can I just start? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. So Joseph Wershing is a German cinematographer. He was born in Munich and he comes of age in the late 1910s, 1920s as a young man who is very interested in the broad kind of artistic scene in Munich at the time, which is a very intermedial scene between theater, photography, and cinema. And this is also the height of German expressionism that's starting to migrate from theater into film experimentation. So Joseph Wershing joins this film studio in the 1920s called Emelka Film Company, which is attracting a lot of talent from across Europe. And Wershing joins Amelka at a time when another very interesting young man decides that cinema is his vocation, that's Alfred Hitchcock. So Hitchcock and Wershing are trying their hand at cinema, which is still a very nascent kind of a form, right, in the 1920s. It's not fully recognizable, understandable, legible in the way that it is today. He comes across and makes acquaintance with a director, Franz Austin, whose brothers are running Emelka. And they meet and end up collaborating with these Indian men who are also in Germany at the time, Himanshu Rai and Niranjan Pal. Niranjan Pal is a writer and Himanshu Rai is an actor. And they decide that they want to collaborate on making some epic, grandiose international co-productions, which is still possible in the silent era, with the kind of vision that the Indians bring to that story, which is we want to tell stories 
about India made by, with creative control by Indian creatives, but needing a kind of technical and financial support from European counterparts. So in this process, Joseph Wershing makes a trip to India in the 1920s as a cinematographer to shoot two silent films for Himanshu Rai. And then again in the 1930s, when Himanshu Rai decides that he wants to now move back to India and really set up a talkie film studio, that will be an Indian studio, right? No more kind of collaborations, co-productions, not West-facing anymore, but more India-facing. Joseph Wershing decides that he'll just emigrate. So he moves to India with his family. He's newly married. He comes here with his wife, Charlotte Wershing. And he becomes the in-house cinematographer for Bombay Talkie Studio. So the photographs that we see in the book are all from the personal archive of Joseph Wershing, who lives in India for the rest of his life and uh, dies while making, again, an iconic film of Indian cinema, which is Pakiza. Oh, wow. That, yeah. So, w- wait, so he was working on the film very d- directly? He was the cinematographer for Pakiza, but Pakiza infamously took many, many years to be completed and transitioned to a cinemascope lens as that technology came in, transitioned to color as that technology came in. So during that time period, Wershing died and they had to pivot to new cinematographers. Right. Yeah, that is fascinating. One of the other things that I find very valuable in this history is to consider why Joseph Wershing might have moved to India at all in this very definitive kind of way, right? Just emigrating. And it wasn't just him. He moved along with some other German colleagues like Franz Austin. So Franz Austin was a director and he directed all the Bombay Talkies early films up until the start of the Second World War. So from 1934 to 1939, a German director was directing some of the early classics in the canon of Bombay cinema. And Joseph Wershing, a German cinematographer, was shooting these films. You would not know that unless you watched these films and looked at the opening credits, right? Right. Because these are films that are in Hindi Urdu. They feature all Indian casts, right? But there's these Germans that are behind this. Even the set designer initially was a German called Karl von Spretti. So I think what's interesting is why these men moved. And the answer really lies in what's happening in Germany at the time. So they were working with Emelka, with the very famous Ufa Studios. And these are men that are German. They're not Jewish, right? And they're not political exiles. But still, they are feeling constrained and limited by this very authoritarian fascist move, which is really co-opting film and cinema in Germany as a propagandistic tool. or anti-Semitic, various racial purity kinds of storytelling. So I think it's very interesting that filmmakers from Germany who didn't have an immediate threat to their lives were nonetheless feeling completely creatively claustrophobic and decided that they needed to move to a context with more creative freedom where they didn't have to be arm-twisted 
to tell stories about national origins in a highly exclusionary way. Right. And I think that again is very interesting, right? That it's possible for filmmakers, commercial filmmakers to make these choices. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. seems very hard to imagine no. <laughs> in, in India today. Yeah. So in that sense, I think I want to start with just thinking about what the significance of Joseph Wershing himself is within this known history of Indian cinema, right? Because it gives us, I think, a very expansive perspective on the contours of what one calls, and I think mistakenly, national cinemas. So for example, how can a German cinematographer be considered a pioneer of Indian cinema? Right. Right, which is one of the things that we're trying to do with this book. We're trying to kind of yeah. reinsert Wershing as one of the early uh, pioneers of Indian cinema. Right. And then what was he doing in Bombay in the first place? And I think tracking these questions leads us to a very fascinating network of people, places, practices that really help us see that a search for some kind of authentic origin story for Indian cinema just doesn't hold. Yeah. And yeah. that kind of futility of a desire for authenticity, I think has a lot to tell us today, right? Yes, so absolutely. I think there's a lot of emphasis or interest in kind of mining the Hindu origins of Indian cinema, for example, right? So the oft-repeated historical myth, I would say, that Indian cinema originated with the Hindu mythological form. Right. Again, it's a kind of consequence of the status of the archive, right? Some of yeah. the extant early silent films are Hindu mythologicals. But some of the earliest experiments with making fiction feature films in South Asia were completely promiscuous in terms of the story traditions they were drawing on. And right. one very resonant story tradition comes from the Arabian Nights fantasy cycles. No one today can imagine, right, that we can trace the origins of Indian cinema back to the Arabian Nights. Right, yeah. It is true. Yeah. <laughs> right? This kind of conflation of the origin story of cinema in India with our ever, you know, ready-to-hand mythological origin stories. And, you know, it also kind of percolates into, you know, the Ramayana and the whole kind of current debate of who should play Rama yeah. and Sita, how, what their moral standing is. And this is, it's, I mean, it seems bizarre, but it's not so bizarre at all. Um, and it's been a question, actually, for decades. But the question of who is going to play Ram and Sita, these are questions that have been asked, I think, for decades. But what's interesting is that the responses to those questions have always been rather pragmatic, right? Often driven by commerce and often promiscuous. So very little consideration was really paid by filmmakers, film producers, not just at Bombay Talkies, but all these other studios that were operating at this time, that the religious identity of an actor has to exactly match the religious identity of the character. And I think in that sense, there's a certain kind of promiscuity 
in terms of aesthetics, in terms of casting choices, in terms of borrowing stories from various story traditions across the world, you know, mixing Arabian Nights with some kind of Radha Krishna Ras Leela in the same film, which I think is one of the the boons or the exciting things about the messiness of Bombay cinema, right? You can love it, you can hate it, you can think it's problematic, but somewhere it has been historically quite um, difficult to pin down as advocating one monolithic narrative with one takeaway message. And the filmmakers that are doing that are amongst the most dangerous people in India today. So I think when one starts thinking about all the different cultural, industrial, financial flows, right, that come together to create this film form that today we want to proudly tout as something authentically Indian and something that we can brand as a kind of cultural soft power, one has to understand it is very messy and it frustrates any desire for pinning down origins as Hindu or civilizational in some sense. Right. So I think that's that's a pretty world saving yes, possibility. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio and Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. <laughs>